Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There is nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up the racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kesson reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if, she asked, so-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis? Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Thank you for listening. Interview responses are being depicted by actors. So uh, would you please state your name and where you work and where you are from? My name is Matt. Uh, I work for the Visiting Nurses Association of the Southwest Region, and I live in Vermont. And I'm Laura. I work at an elementary middle school in Vermont, and we live in Vermont together. What was your experience with remote learning like? What worked well and what didn't go so well? For me, um, as somebody who was an essential worker at the time, I found it a little stressful coming home at the end of the day and trying to help my daughter, you know, because I worked a full day, you know, and my life was switched upside down from infection control. So when I came home, I was mentally exhausted and I found I didn't have the capacity to um, help my daughter and it turned it into more into arguments with her trying to do schoolwork. And that's one thing that didn't go well. What I think went well for us in general was she had a really supportive teacher who reached out and made sure that all the kids' needs were being met. She couldn't do one-on-one Zoom meetings with the kids because the district didn't allow it. So she would call the kids and read through the stuff with the kids and do pre-teaching from our child with uh, who has a disability. And it was wonderful because she could access the same stuff her classmates were. And the other parents we know whose kids had other disabilities, the classroom teacher was calling them on the phone and walking them through things. I, I can't say enough. I was home teaching all day. And one of the things that I clearly see is the need for kids to have more technology instruction, not only on how to use a specific platform, but how to use specific programs and, and to problem solve when something goes wrong. I think that a lot of the instruction has been pulled out of the schools and then they just assume because if kids have computers, they know how to do things. And I, I found that challenging. 
some things I thought went really well was the classroom teacher not only supporting our daughter, but also that she established a strong family connection and connection with her students, stronger than even when they were in school. <laughs> and I think because of the fact that the school was really promoting social emotional support, the school itself, that the classroom teacher was reaching out constantly via texts, via phone calls. She was reading to our daughter and she was, she was pre-teaching. She was doing all that and the principal had worked hard to keep the school community bonded. So keeping those same habits that they would start the school day with and reaching out to families when they had lunch deliveries, for instance, people, well, teachers from the school or the principal might be on the bus, like a special thing. And so I thought that was great. In terms of what didn't go well particularly, it was the specialized instruction from our perspective. It, it was non-existent to the fact where we had to hire an outside tutor to support our daughter. And luckily, I mean really luckily, that I found, we found great tutors that would allow her to actually make progress. So in terms of distance learning, we can see that our daughter can make progress, but it wasn't because of the district. It was because of the effort that we put in, that the, that the tutor put in. In remote learning, did you feel like your students learned more about the same or less than when they were in school? Uh, so I think you answered part of that for your daughter because you sought an outside tutor. Uh, well, I think that they learned more in some elements, but very narrow, narrowly, for, for instance, when when we were using a workshop model and i'm working with five or six kids because i was doing synchronous learning it was it was a small group instruction so i would be doing reading in very small groups and i didn't have to do any of the classroom management that you might have to do when you're in a classroom so it was really focused so if i had a particular lesson that i wanted to get through and learning target for the instruction then i could get through it with that group without being distracted after a while, I learned how to navigate the instruction and make sure that everybody was participating. And I felt that even if I had the same learning target and we were reading the same story in two different groups, one group might take 30 minutes to do it and another group might take 45 minutes. But I was able to have the flexibility to be able to do that. But again, they had to be very targeted and kids had to show up with the work done. The asynchronous stuff, they had to have it prepared and ready to go. Technology was an issue with the same thing. There was a lack of technology instruction for kids and for teachers to be able to do that. Uh, the interpersonal skills, some of those whole child skills, those are the things that I think were lost. And some of the writing tasks, it was challenging to know what was the kids' work and what might not have been their work. <laughs> what might have been their parents' support or something else, where I might have had them do that in school and be able to monitor what's occurring. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that does. Uh, that's the flip side because parents sometimes don't know if it's their child's work or the teacher's work. That was interesting. What do you want lawmakers and other decision makers to know about your experience? About distance learning? Um, for us, we want lawmakers to understand that some districts could move forward with the education they were providing the kids in the distance learning. Uh, other districts fell flat on their face. An example would be for special ed, even one-on-one, -on -one, there's no reason for one-on-one -on -one service not to be provided uh, for speech and for reading, but yet many areas, at least in our case, 
um, the district cut many of those services. And when you asked about it in the response from the response from the district was, uh, we consulted with the state and they said, this is allowable. And so for an individual, we are interpreting the law without any legal advice where the district is interpreting the law with the legal advice. And you don't know if we are on the same playing field as, as, as a parent, I wish I could have reached out to the lawyer without spending lots of money and have the same legal advice as the district. Because I read the law completely differently as an essential worker than the district did. And the lawyers for the school are paid for with taxpayer money, our money. And that's really frustrating because it's an uneven playing field and it's really inequitable. And for me, I was able to do a direct district to district comparison. And so it's inequitable across districts. And even within a single district for schools, depending on what the district chose to do or not do. For instance, the district our daughter is in, they said consulting with a teacher for special ed services is enough. Whereas in the district that I teach, the same SLP, they are doing one-on-one -on -one services. They are online doing it and making it occur. They are sending support work for parents that want to do more or help their child more at home. Whereas you're, con you're consulting with a teacher during a morning meeting about a kid's speech and it's an articulation issue. It doesn't even make sense. We know that it's possible to meet their needs because we had a tutor that was doing it from distance learning, but there was no direct instruction, zero, from school closure until the end of the year that the district provided. Whereas when I look at my district, my special educator was not only meeting with, and we had targeted groups of kids, and we would meet in small groups to do reading together, but she was also providing services in small groups or one-on-one, -on -one, as well as constant contact via messenger or texting with students multiple times a day. So the social emotional support was also there in my district, whereas in our daughter's district, one single phone call from a special ed educator and two postcards. That was the extent of the communication that was social emotional support for my kid. And being able to see what we were doing in my district made me proud of where I teach. But it broke my heart for my kid who was asking questions and I'm trying to shield her from how awful it is. So this was, this was really hard. And when I look at my district and the mindset of my district, we were really flexible working with all of our special educators and the teachers as a group and the principal. And yet our daughter's district uh, there was this fixed mindset that this is what is going to happen. This is what you will get. And there's no deviation, completely inflexible, not looking at the individual child, not looking at the individual families. And it's really unacceptable. And we ended up having to uh, reach out to the state. And we, we reached out to the state on three occasions. And when we went back to ask the superintendent to contact us, he didn't contact us. Twice we sent emails, once through internal, so that we knew that he had received it, and, and he wouldn't contact us. At least he didn't contact us back. So we were going to the higher levels as well as contacting the teacher, the special educator, director. And so when we talked to the state, they would tell us something, and then we would come back and say, well, this is what the state told us. And then the district would say, no, that's not what the state said we can do. So the district's perspective 
was to do the bare minimum. And again, I'm looking at special educators in my district who are knocking themselves out, doing more hours than ever and finding resources. And then my own child receiving none at all, no instruction. And the big thing from that uh, for us is that she gets six and a half hours of one-on-one -on -one instruction. The district came back with a consulting model where they get two times 30 minutes a week where the special educator would sit in on the group reading project and, and then afterwards she would talk about what they had talked about in the meeting with their child, which what didn't make sense. So there was no direct instruction. It's going to be basically, this is what we read. And there was no moving forward with any of her reading services or writing services. Um, the paraeducator was actually stripped out with the original distance plan. So she gets 180 minutes a day and they took it down to nothing. Eventually after three weeks into distance learning, so in the middle of May, uh, they were able to get us a paraeducator who would redo our child over the phone. So the paraeducator could only do things over the phone. And, and that's assuming the stuff in front of my child, the stuff's in front of my child so that you couldn't do any writing pieces because the para couldn't assist because it's phone, nothing face to face. And eventually the district did agree to subsidize. They agreed to pick up our tutor to provide services. So when I look at lawmakers, what the governor is saying that has to be done, what the AOE is saying has to be done is not exactly, actually, is not actually what's being done. Number one, parents read it one way, districts may be reading it another way, and we don't have the same resources of a lawyer to be able to do that. That's number one. Number two, that we are fortunate enough that we can pay out of pocket and cut somewhere else. You know, we are both working. We're, we're really lucky. We also have the ability, because I work in another school district, to know what can be done. It's completely inequitable. And even in terms of what the state is telling us and what is happening in the district, there's no oversight to make sure that there's, that, that is actually occurring there. I think that it may be assumed by lawmakers that there's best intentions, but from our perspective, it's all about cost cutting. It's this short piece of cost cutting and doesn't have a lot of foresight. So the distance learning plan that was supposed to be met with the parents, this is from the district, that you need to meet with the parents and discuss it with them. You have to have it all drawn up by the 10th of April is what our district said. Our distance learning plan on the 29th of April, we emailed to ask for a distance learning plan and they didn't have one. Then when they sent us something, it wasn't about our child. They offered to give her OT and PT services. She doesn't get OT and PT. She has no SLP service, services in it. it. And we are receiving this on April 20th. So even though the lawmakers think this is what we're telling, this is what we are telling the districts to do, they are not doing it. And so our daughter, when we finally meet on the 29th of April, 19 days after this learning plan was supposed to be in place, we met about it and there were things that we said, no, we disagree with our child not getting SLP services at all, only being a consult model. We, we disagree with the times that, that were being offered and still they said, this is your final distance learning plan. And we got it 
in mid-May. So our distance learning plan was active for all of a month. And it's not that we aren't communicating with the district. We sent them starting in March. These are some of the issues that we see uh, at home and can you please help us solve them? And the only person who responded to us was the classroom teacher. The classroom teacher, I can't say enough about, she was a savior. These are the types of things that the lawmakers need to know. And I'm happy to talk to any lawmaker and tell them my personal story. Okay, um, before I move into the literacy questions, I remember you saying your daughter is a bright student with dyslexia? Yes, yes, she has an above average IQ. So if you want to measure it by IQ, that's typically what is used right now. In the state of Vermont, you still have to use the discrepancy model. We're lucky that she has an above average IQ, even though she's still functioning in a reading like the second percentile. We are, we are just so fortunate. If there wasn't that disparity, what would be happening to her? We often hear about students in school who are graduating and did not learn to read and write. What do you think is going on here? Um, first, we're not identifying problems at an early level. We're still using the wait and see model when they're behind. Let's see if they catch up next year, and it's usually not until fourth, fifth, uh, sixth grade, sometimes middle school, where they say we should probably see what's going on with this kid. So we missed the gap of identifying the kids who are behind early on and intervening. Um, the second thing we're really not using at schools, well, they are saying they are using research-based programs for reading, but they're not. Teachers are still using the model system where it says, if you don't know the word, look at it, see if you can guess the word, see if you can sound it out. There's, there's really no true phonics program. And the teachers that do use it and are using it well, it's, it's far and few. Even though the district says they are using a research-based program, realistically, the teachers are not doing it or they are not doing it to fidelity. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a third of our kids reading below grade level in fourth grade. And that's from state statistics. If you look at whole language, which is so popular in the 70s, and honestly, it's easier. And unfortunately, a lot of us that are teachers now, that's how we learned reading. So that's how we understood reading to be taught. But we know more now, and we know that phonics-based instruction is better for kids. That is what the research says. So there are people who don't want to rock the boat. So let's go to balanced literacy. Well, guess what? We find out that that doesn't work. Phonics-based instruction works. And if you're not doing that in early grades, because I teach middle school, so if we look at how the brain is set up. The brain is set up to be taking in new information until they get to middle school. And then we are looking at the application of that information. So we have kind of a small window of opportunity to really be able to get these kids reading on grade level. We can't continue to just wait and see what happens. We have to use instruction that we know works and teachers need to be taught how to use it. You can't just hand them a booklet and say, okay, now teach this. We need instruction for teachers so that they know what to do because teachers want to do what is right for their kids because otherwise they wouldn't be teachers. They're not doing it to get rich. And so early identification and intervention is what is most important. Districts 
tend to buy into one single program. They say, we're going to use this program. We're going to teach every kid to use this program. Or they say they are going to teach every kid, uh, teach every teacher. And, and then you have teachers who are doing the program who are not certified to do the program. We have taken the weekend crash course and now are teaching what should be a certification level to kids. For Fidelity, they're not even trained to do it. I think when you choose that one system approach, I always think of it like if, uh, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, even though a kid's uh, a screw and this kid needs a screwdriver and yet we're trying to bash it with a hammer to make it work. And I think that's a big problem in our schools with our kids is that we're using one approach and they're going to say it's to hit 60% of the kids, but 40% of the kids are being left behind because it's not going to work for them based on who they are as individuals. And so if we're looking at efficiency, using a screwdriver on a kid that's a screw is going to be much more efficient. But having a one set approach doesn't give any flexibility to be able to meet the kids where they're at and then progress them and move them up. And part of the problem is that we let it become a problem. So then if we look at what happens in middle school and high school and they start having behavior, behavioral issues, this is why. It's not totally why because they're middle schoolers and high schoolers, but this is why the stakes become really high. And they aren't able to access their education in the same way because that is when reading is so necessary for directions and for content. And if we assume that kids are coming in being able to read and they're not able to, then we have to take our middle school teachers and our high school teachers and we need to teach them about reading. But there's this assumption that all kids learn to read by fourth grade and now we can just give them reading to be able to take in content and be able to be assessed. But some kids can't even understand the question that's being asked because they are working so hard to decode the question itself that they use up all their energy. Yeah, and, and I know down here they are really focusing on the social, emotional well-being of the child because, you know, we do have a population that has, you know, we're dealing with high drugs uh, use with the kids. And, you know, these families are just struggling socially and emotionally, but at the end of the day, we are not providing solid reading foundations. So now these kids who are struggling socially, uh, socially and emotionally can't read in the middle school. Uh, uh, they become the kids, the class clown, the kid who knows they're smart, kids and uh they're smart they know they're smart but they can't read so would you rather be the dummy in the classroom or the class clown so they they pull the class the class clown card and they set themselves up for even more social emotional problems later in life because of their inability to read and that's to impact them after high school with with their jobs but they won't have the skill set to do what needs to be done and a quote that has always stuck with me is, it's okay in our society to say, I'm bad at math, so I don't wanna do that. And you can't say that in our society that I'm bad at reading because there's this whole shift because you're judged, not only that, it, it, it's recognized that you won't be able to do tasks that you need to do. But I can totally say that I'm bad at math and nobody judges me. That's true. How is reading taught in most schools and what is working well and what isn't? Is there anything you want to add? 
I feel like we have these great in-services. You know, they bring in some great experts. And I know our district, they have brought in someone uh, years ago who was a reading specialist. She's on the national level. She presents at conferences and uh, yet they don't follow her recommendations. They say, we're going to have this person come in. We're going to make these changes. But yet it's still, we're going to move on as we were going to move on. And I don't know if it's the administrators not wanting to rock the boat and say, you need a superintendent that says, you know, we're failing here. We're, we're going to fix the problem by doing this and this. And you're going to make people upset. Uh, and they say they, they give them the tools, but yet nobody double checks to see if the tools are being used. The teachers that are using these in services and trainings and programs well do a good job, but you know, it's, it's probably less than, uh, than, than we would like to see. But I'm thinking, and of course I'm a teacher and I've been going, I'm going to be defense, um, defensive to teachers, but part of it is there are so many new programs. We got to do this now, this now, this now, instead of saying like, let's focus on what's most important. So it's kind of like we have an in-service and we teach teachers how to do this and we give them two months to implement it. And then, okay, now we move on to the next thing. And if you really want teachers to do it well, you've got to give them time to do it well. And you also have to give them continued support. I also think that there's this short-sightedness that if we deal with this one problem now, this reading problem now, it won't become an issue in the middle school and high school that all the monies that are being spent on behavioral issues, all the monies that are, we're spending on interventions in the upper grades wouldn't happen if we were identifying and dealing with the problem early enough. I know that if I had a disease, God forbid I had cancer, I wouldn't wait and see what happens. I would do all the research that I could do to be able to deal with it and try to contain it and solve it before it gets bigger and worse. And that's just not the way that reading is approached. As a former school board member, what do school boards need to do to move in a positive direction? Well, I think school board members spend so much time looking at the budgets and how to deal with are we paying the bills? You know, that's what it comes down to. Uh, many times the school board, I don't think they're told what programs are going on. I remember I was told that we have this program we're going to look at reading scores. We're going to get individual programs for children. Uh, as a parent, I didn't see that. You know, it's a great presentation and they tell you what they're going to do, but you never hear the follow-up on how it's working. Is the money that we are using to train every teacher in a specific program? Are we seeing the scores go up or are they staying flat? Because it's a lot of money to invest in teacher training. And if we are not seeing anything improve, then why are we doing it? And I don't think as a school board member, you know, either A, they're not asking the questions because when I was on the school board, I didn't know to ask the questions. And I, I didn't think, I don't think they're being told, you know, what the real big picture looks like. Do school board members typically have children in school? Typically, I, I think school board members have kids in the district, but I, I think people running for the boards, they're far and few, and it tends to be the same people. So if you look at the school boards, you know, 
most of them are either people who are fiscal conservatives and don't want to spend any money in education, and that makes up a part of the board. And they're not asking the questions about reading, what programs, because they're not looking at how we are educating our kids, because they're coming at it from a fiscal conservative taxpayer. You know, I, I don't want to pay taxes, you know, teachers get paid too much. And the other people I notice on the board tend to have kids who are doing okay in school and their kids don't struggle. So they want to make sure their kids are getting the fun in the school, but they're not looking out for all the other kids. They are not asking the parents who have struggling kids in the school where they stand. And honestly, for a board, you know, have all these committees, you have the technology committee, you have every committee, building committee, you have all these school committees, but yet on a board, you don't have a special ed committee with a community member saying, what's not working? And I think that's a big piece. You know, you don't have, there's no committee saying what programs. Let's bring a group together, committee, to see what programs we are using in our district and how well they are working out in our district. So all the committees you notice out there are, you know, they're the things that keep the schools running. It's not how are we teaching the kids. I think this is also hard because even though as a teacher and school board member, I'm apprehensive to speak out because I don't want to be a negative impact on my child. I don't want to narrow her opportunities because I have a voice. So I feel like I can't express myself. And, and that's not what America, that's not what Vermont should be. When you have a school board member, if they talk ill about education, I think teachers take it as a direct attack on them. And it's hard. You are looking at education, looking at how we are applying the education. But if you ever do anything, there's that fine line. Am I attacking the teachers or trying to support them by saying, let's move on and use, is there something out there that we could be doing? And it's a tricky balance. Yeah. Laura, do you feel there would be pushback if you spoke at a school board meeting as an educator? Um, are, are you more, or are you more concerned about your daughter's well-being? I'm more concerned about my daughter. I'm, I'm worried that it would be taken out on her, not by the teachers, but by the opportunities that might come in her future as she progresses in school, or that they would not want to promote my child in doing, let's say, being a lead in a play because she might not look good for the district. And there are some people. I shouldn't say a lot, that, that their ego is more important than the education of children. And unfortunately, I think some of those people are really in the higher levels of education, superintendencies, that kind of level. You know, some, some principles. And so I find that a challenge. In terms of myself, I feel fortunate that I've been a teacher long enough that there's some safety in if I were a new teacher, I might not feel the same way. I, I also feel that in my school district now, that they want to hear what you have to say. They might not want you to make it totally public, but they are okay if you do say it. Yeah, and I think the parents that do speak out, I'm just thinking of the ones that I've, I've seen speak out. They're the people who pull their kids from the school and move to a different district. They're the kids who go to the private school. They point out the problem. They point out the problem. One teacher is saying, how can you expect the teachers to teach the kids? And they're not spelling things correctly. I think the fallback on the family is, is tough. I don't 
think it's a direct attack on the teacher. He's pointing out a problem, but it's assumed that you're attacking teachers. And then the downside is, you know, it keeps snowballing. And I don't think if it's the family, there's, there's some type of hostility that occurs. I don't want to use the word hostility necessarily, but there's something, there's something that occurs when the parent says, my kid is not going back to that school. I will send them to private school. I will move to a different district. And parents have done that. That, that's something that we had to do. We were in the district that we currently are, and we loved, loved our school, but our daughter was not getting the instruction that she needed. And I knew that in my school district that we have a much more flexible approach toward special education. And I know that she would get the instruction that she needed. We moved. We were fortunate enough to be able to afford to move. We went into our retirement, like we had to go into our retirement money to make this happen. And our daughter was not happy at my school, but she made great strides in reading. And so we ended up, because we felt like we had evidence at the end of the year, we had the evidence that showed that this particular methodology or approach works for our daughter based on the district's evidence, which showed that their one-stop shop, their one methodology didn't work. So we have direct comparative evidence. We also went out to outside resources, had independent evaluations to demonstrate that as well. And so we came back to the district of the school that we loved initially and feeling that we had the evidence and luckily we were able to sell that house that we had bought and the district ignored the evidence that we had. So we ended up again going to another outside evaluator and we asked them a question. We were very specific. We went to Boston Children's Hospital. We wanna know what is best for our daughter. And we specifically listed the two approaches. And they looked at all the evidence, they did all their evaluations, and they said, this is the horse you should back. This is the methodology that is best for your child. We brought that to the district and they were like, eh, nope, we don't do it. We don't do it. So we had three individual reports saying that a specific methodology is better for our kid. We have hard evidence from taking our child to a different school and it doesn't matter. The district is like, nope, that's not what we do here. And it's not surprising because initially when we were asking for services when she was first identified in the first grade, we said we were asking for 60 minutes of services a day and the consultant that my husband referred to earlier that had been working in the district for three years and had left, we had spoken to her because we had gone to a conference with her because we had showed her the evidence and she said she needs 60 minutes a day. So we come to the district during this initial meeting and they say, oh no, we only do 60 minutes a day. All we do is 30 minutes. And I was flabbergasted. I had no idea that it would be, it wasn't about the kid, sorry. Sorry, that was, that was my little aside. What else would you like Vermonters to know about literacy and education in our state? I don't think Vermonters understand how poorly we're doing with reading in our state. I mean, if you're looking for it, you can find the information, but it's not easily accessible. It's not like the hot topic front of any paper saying, you know, a third of the kids read below grade level in fourth and eighth grade. Or, you know, we've seen a 17-year decline in reading scores in Vermont. Uh, these are the things that the general public is not seeing. 
And I think we all feel not just kids have literacy issues. Other parents notice as well that their kids are reading not as strong as when they were in school, but they don't know about it and they don't know how to ask the questions. So if you look, a third of the kids are reading below the basic level. And then another third are reading at the basic level. I mean, that's unacceptable. It really should be unacceptable. And what we know that what it takes for us to do as adults every single day and how much we have to read, how can we squander our children's time and allow what is happening to continue to occur? Yeah, do you buy a home in Vermont? You know, it's hard, hard to move districts. You know, some districts are rather large, but I mean, if you go say in Massachusetts, you get a whole nother different set of state laws and regulations. If you go to New York, you get another set of state laws and regulations. And I think that makes it hard. If, if you're looking to keep, you can call it a brain drain. We are really having a brain drain in Vermont. Unless you're up in Burlington, if, if you're in a place that has a college education system that promotes education, you're gonna do okay. But if you're in an area of Vermont where you don't have higher education in the community, uh, you're really going to have a brain drain because what's going, it's, uh, what's going on uh, comes into that community. And the factory jobs have left the state. So people aren't going to move to the state. People aren't going to stay in the state because look at our reading scores. They have so many other options. We're a tiny little state. They can just jump over to another state where they know their kids will be better educated. And that is frightening because that leads us to be just one socioeconomic level in the state. And as Matt referenced, it's inequitable across districts because if we look at where colleges are, that families might move there because they have a decent system. But people aren't going to move to the district where we live because if you look at the scores, they're terrible. And that's why moving to other districts, moving to the private schools, that shouldn't be the case. All children, regardless, deserve to have a solid education. Yeah, and I just talked to a doctor that recently moved so his kid could go to a private school in another district because it's gonna be better for the kid. And he's lucky enough he can afford to do it. Most people are not able to do it. And I think for him, he sees the opportunities as, as somebody who has means to enhance his child's education. But he wanted to stay here. He likes the community, he loves the community. He likes the people he worked with, but he looked at his option of a school that has a low reading score. 10% of the kids are in AP classes. It was the right fit from an educational standpoint. It, it wasn't best for his child. So he picked an area that he could send his child to. And he looked in other areas too. We looked in boarding states. Uh, where's my kid going to get the best education? And he made a choice to move from the community, which is, and you know, that's, well, that's the brain drain we are seeing. And even though we like the community. And the problem with, with some of the doctors within the community is that you have this. If you're, say, an on-call doctor, you have to be X minutes from the hospital. So they are kind of forced to move within these areas because they're part of the hospital. And at the end of the day, you're going to start finding less and less good physicians. Yeah, physicians aren't willing to move here. Because they don't want to deal with the low income. You know, they, they don't want to deal with a district that isn't doing well. If we look at our hospital, we can't get physicians here. And part of that is because... Young physicians. Yeah, young physicians. Part of that is because the educational system. They mm -hmm. don't want to start their families and be here and have to deal with that. 
And that's part of the problem. It just, it feels dire at times. This spring, Vermont Governor Phil Scott said, I believe it is possible for Vermont to emerge from this crisis on a path toward having the very best education system in the country and ultimately in the world. What would the very best education system need to include? The literature says that, look, 90 to 95% of kids should be reading at grade level. You know, you can get them there with the right instruction. And we're looking at much less than, much less than that. We're looking at a third proficient in the state of Vermont. So we have to bring, you know, 60% more to get to where we need to be. Having a third of the people not reading below basic is not the best education. We need to do more early, more screening early on to identify the gaps and you know, fund these positions to make sure kids are getting on grade level, really before fourth grade is ideal. And that's, that's what we need to move forward. And it's the same with math. They need to be on grade level by fourth grade. So a lot of it is early ed, early intervention, early identification to make this the best education. Because at this point, you know, we have an educated community, which is what you want for the kids. And people are willing to give money to high schools because you see the results of high schools. Oh, they won the football. Yeah. They won this trophy. But you don't see those results because you're not assessing them in the same way for, for early ed. So, so that they're not winning the trophy, they're not winning the prize. It's, it's not the competition. So it's harder to make public. And, and people need to understand how important important early instruction is and that early ed needs to not only have let, let's identify the kids but that you have to do something about it because you know some laws that are passed around the nation are just oh you have to identify those kids but it it never says that you have to do anything about it so fundamentally for us as Vermonters we need to build strong community and strong desire to do well motivated desire to do well in reading and it's going to the solve problems later on and you've got to be willing to put those eggs in that basket and say this matters this here is what's going to make a difference although i'm not going to see the results for 10 years although i'm not going to see it for 12 years you've got to be able to say this is what is important to us we're leaving it up to the districts to self-identify and they're gonna postpone that for as long as possible. Realistically, you need a state assessment team that goes into the school at kindergarten, in first grade, second grade, and there are screeners out there that you can use for reading and apply those at the state level. And if a kid is identified, you provide service for that kid. And don't leave it up to the district because they will find reasons not to provide services or they'll put them into a title program before providing special ed services. You need the state to come in and say, we're going to test, we're going to identify, and then we're going to intervene. And sometimes I feel like with everything in the state of Vermont, it's so small, you know, it's hard to use a training program because everybody uses that training program. So, so they're not gonna give an honest opinion. They're gonna give a very, this is the problem, the solutions are, refer to these locations. And so if, if you go to the state, you complain at the state, realistically, is, is the state going to rock the district because it's such a small state, everybody knows everybody. You need to be able to go to the state and understand if you go to the state that they're going to do something. 
and they're not going to call up and say, we received this XYZ complaint, can you just fix it and make it go away? The way to fix this problem is that we need lawyers, we need advocates who are free to the parents. And as parents who, who are trying to do this, if you, if you don't have $20,000 to hire a lawyer, you know, you're not going to go against a school district because they have unlimited funds in the district. They are supported by the state with funds for lawyers, but I don't have the unlimited funds like the district. The district can spend thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting one family and they can just hide it in their budgets. They can put it in their budget and that will fund these lawyers to make sure parents don't win. And the only reason a parent will win and get money back is if you win with the due process case. By that point, most parents are so frustrated, throwing their hands up, say, I give up, you know, either put my kid in a private school or move, or you get the parents that say, I don't care. My kid will just, where they end up is where they end up. And sadly that happens to not the higher socioeconomic people, the smaller families, lower socioeconomic families are at a loss. And we are fortunate enough that we are educated and I'm in education, so I know some of the questions to ask. And it scares me for those people who don't know to ask. They don't know what to ask. And for us, if we were to calculate the hours that we have to just spend making sure that the district is doing its job, um, I mean, I can tally them, I can. I have pages and pages of reports that I have to keep beyond doing my job. And I'm not just my job to earn money, my job as a parent, that we feel that we have to sacrifice being the watchdog for the district to the point that we can't be the parents that we want to be. The money that we have to spend to be able to get our children the education that she deserves. And again, this kid is with a high IQ that is pretty soon going to be so frustrated that she can't communicate or take in new information that she's going to give up. I hate to say that. But she's going to get to that point starting soon in middle school where she's going to see that dis that's disparity and not know how to handle it. And then where are we at? And it's extremely distressing. So that was another tangent, I think. No, that, that was great. Thank you. I was wondering if you wanted to share a little of your mediation process with me. You know, I, could, I can stop recording or uh, is it okay to keep this on and go ahead and share publicly? Because of the challenges that we're having with the district and we had to contact the state. And again, we have the documented evidence because I now have to be somebody who collects. That's what I really feel, that I have to be the person to collect evidence. And every time I get an email, I have to say, is this evidence or isn't this evidence? I don't wanna be a lawyer. So we contacted the state and we did it separately. And we also contacted other organizations because we're saying to ourselves, maybe we're wrong because the district presents us as being wrong. So then the state says one thing, or other organizations say the same thing the state says, and we bring it back and we're told you were wrong. So, so we got so frustrated. I told you before we contacted the superintendent and we asked for a meeting twice, that didn't occur just this spring because we had contacted in the past, this is just since the distance learning. And yes, so these three phone calls to the state are just since the distance learning. And so we put together, we were asked for a meeting. We talked about what the state had said, the district wasn't budging. So then we started filing out an administrative complaint. We decided to try to do mediation to make things happen more quickly so that things could be in place for the fall. And that as parents, you have to make decisions based on a small window of opportunity when your kid is really set up to be able to learn specific things. So in order to be more efficient, we went to mediation, yet we were 
still filling out an administrative complaint. So mediation went really quickly. I have to say that when we contacted the state, they had a quick turnaround. The mediator contacted us. The mediator was really great, and it was very clear that this is the task. This is what we're supposed to accomplish. It's all confidential. And when we went to mediation, and you can do it on Zoom, and this is another thing, when we talked to other parents that were having issues, we didn't know you could do a Zoom meeting. They didn't know you could have Zoom IEP meetings. And again, educated parents that are just identifying that their children are having some issues. We went to mediation and we were only brought a few issues of all the issues that we have. So we brought 14 points to be dis discussed, which the mediator said, well, you know, that could be considered a sizable amount. And we had one major thing that we were trying to move forward on. And we weren't able to move forward on that. And then the other 13 were literally all compliance issues that the district was supposed to do anyway. So we agreed to do things that were already state mandated, but they weren't doing. So we brought it to the mediation to draw attention to it because then we may have more recourse. Then you now have a legal document that if they break the mediation contract, it's it's a legally binding document, document, and these these are things that should be occurring anyway. But the state says that they should occur. But they weren't occurring, so we just we just made sure we put them in there anyway, so that we could agree to say that after this, this will occur. And some of them were pretty silly things. Things that we shouldn't have to bring. If the state says you have X number of days to do things, you have X number of days to do things. I shouldn't be receiving the thing that was supposed to be done in X number of days, three times the X number of days, and only because I requested it. That is unacceptable. But yet we had to bring it to mediation because the fact that the state said it's supposed to happen isn't enough for districts to actually do it. So we have to bring it to mediation so that we have another legal recourse. And I don't wanna go for another legal recourse. It's not what I want to spend my efforts on. So even though we went through mediation and we have this signed document, it's already been broken. Yeah, it will be broken within a few days. I think that's the hard thing. When, when you go to mediation, and we walked out of mediation going, they didn't come to mediate. They came to check the box that yes, they came to mediation. There was no give and take on our stuff. And the things that they had to give and take on were things that they should have been doing anyway because the state says so. And the one or two things that they did give on were things that we've been working on. We were promised uh, they'd look into a year ago uh, or that the district identified in their evaluation that something needs to be proved and looked at, but yet that hasn't been done yet. So we asked, you know, can we move forward on this topic? Can we do this evaluation? And they say, yes, yes, yes. And, and then a year, passes and then so we put those things in and we had already agreed to some of the things at the iep meetings over a year ago and then they agreed to it in an iep meeting this year it's written into the iep and yet we have to go to mediation even though they say the iep is a legal document but it's only a legal document if you're willing to go the legal route the time that it takes to set up for a family is exhausting there are three routes that you can go. You can either go to mediation or administrative complaint, or you do due process. And a lot of families don't know you can 
do this. I mean, so, so we are teasing it out. We bring these elements to mediation because they're important. But then we also have, we, we took the things that were the biggest issues of compliance for the state and brought those to mediation. But we still have 30 other elements for administrative complaint that I have spent 40 plus hours on, not only in writing, because if you go to the administrative complaint with the state and they ask, what, do you, what have you done to try to solve this? So we have the complaint. You have to write the individual complaint. Then you have to have the evidence. So I have been spending hours and hours putting that together so that I can send it to the state because the district didn't do what they were supposed to do in the first place. And then we have another piece that is due process, that we have something else that, we're suppo that was supposed to occur. And we have a different opinion than the district on this. So we have to bring that to due process. But then all of this, not only time, we have to find the money for a lawyer or try to do it ourselves. And again, I don't want to be a lawyer. That is not what I want to do. So they make the mediation, as far as setting up, was pretty easy from the state level. But it would be nice, you know, to have the Vermont Family Network you can reach out to and ask questions. And they're helpful, but they can only do so much because their hands are limited. What we really need in the state of Vermont is we need to be able to access advocates and lawyers. That's what we need so that we can go to a lawyer and say, we think we have a case. Can you work with us? And they say yes. And they build the state of Vermont for their time. That's the only way districts would take families seriously, because if, if you don't show up with a lawyer, they're not going to take you seriously. And the only reason you show up with a lawyer is if you have enough money to hire a lawyer. When this whole process first started being an educator, I knew that I didn't know enough about what I needed to fight for my daughter. And having been in IEP meetings, et cetera. So we, we hired an advocate. We had to pay the advocate. And she taught us a lot as where we were going through it would kill me because we would sit at these IEP meetings. And again, this is the short-sightedness. We would sit in two or three hour IEP meetings and we would have two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven or eight school personnel sitting at the table. Those, those three hours, if they calculated out the time that they were paying these people to sit at the table rather than considering our, our ideas, approaches, methodology for our child, that it would be less money overall if they would just do that. Not only talking about what is ethically right, I mean, if we were going down to just dollars and cents. But then again, it's, it's that short-sighted view, not the long-sighted view. Is there anything else you want to add? I think publicly, I would like to say, we have teachers that want to teach our kids. We're in this world now where the science of educating kids, the science of reading, the science of what's best for children, how to make the brain click, it's out there. And I mean, this is a great time with the science of education. And the teachers are probably the best they've been for years based on their education and their training. I think what we need to really do is we need to take that science and we need to apply it in the classroom. And as of now, the science has not been applied in the classroom. And they would tell you, I just, I just had this discussion with my wife the other day. I was reading the article about functional MRIs and how listening to audiobooks engages the exact same part of the brain as reading for literature. And, and that's the thing that that should be out there. I mean, the, the kids should 
be listening to the great literature just to engage that part of the brain to, you know, to make it fire. And, and the science is there to make the education system better. The problem that we have is that we're not applying the science of education to our children. I think for me, because our child is dyslexic, I as a middle school teacher thought I knew enough about dyslexia because it's not required in the state of Vermont to know anything about dyslexia or in our training programs. And then when I had a child that was identified with dyslexia, I realized how ignorant I was as I had then to teach myself. And I called the high school to talk to teachers up there for kids that I was like, this kid has dyslexia. He's in 10th grade now. And I'm sorry that I'm sorry that I didn't know it. I just didn't know what I didn't know. And we have had, because we're very open about the fact that our daughter has dyslexia, my father has dyslexia. Matt has found out that he has dyslexia. I didn't know that that's what it was. And since we've been so open about it, I can't tell you the number of doctors and lawyers, people who are in construction, people across who are like, I have dyslexia and I didn't know until I was an adult. And that's why school was so hard for me. That's why I, it limited my choice of colleges to go to, or that's why I was a behavior problem. They didn't recognize it and they didn't know what to do about it. We have the capacity as a state to be able to identify it and to know what to do about it. So that people in, in adulthood aren't scrambling. So that people, when they are teenagers, have more self-worth and self-understanding. You've been listening to Back to Freedom School, ongoing discussions about some of the challenges facing Vermont's education system and some of the opportunities to achieve equity in Vermont's education system. I'm your host, Infinite. Thanks again for listening.